Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to the Dunn Solutions Podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today we'll hear from our good friend Gary Katz. Gary is a general contractor and finished carpenter who will share valuable information on the following topics. The relationship between moisture content and wood movement, methods for creating better miter joints, best practices for installing tongue and groove materials, and how to properly install a single pre-hung door. We've learned a lot from Gary over the years and hope today's podcast will help you learn too. To contact Gary, you can reach him at gary at catsbrand.com. That is gary at k-a-t-z brand.com. For more information on attending future educational events, feel free to email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. If I'm an expert in anything, it's screwing up. So if you think I'm like the master finished carpenter, think again. I'm just like all of you. I learned everything the hard way, pretty much. There's some things I learned from carpenters when I was lucky enough to work with somebody else. I was brought up in the industry way before Instagram, man. You had to learn things on your own. And I like to say to people, boy, it was a lot different then. You worked in the dark. You were, you were alone. You didn't have anybody to share with. I didn't learn about other techniques until I started reading Fine Home Building. By then, I'd been in the business for over 10 years. So it's a totally different world right now. But I still learn from making mistakes. And a long time ago, somebody said to me, you know, the best way to start a presentation is to tell a story. So I got into that habit, and I think it's really kind of cool because it, it kind of relaxes the atmosphere, it makes me feel a little bit easier, and it helps people understand that I'm, I'm not up here like some kind of master carpenter or something uh, trying to show off or brag or something. If I've got anything to brag about, it's the lessons I've learned the hard way. So I want to tell you about two of them. We were sheeting the roof, sheeting the roof on my new shop down near Medford. That's where I moved about seven years ago. And I don't have a soffit, so I was going to have all the, all the overhangs exposed. So I did what we've done in California for years. I ran what we used to call starter board. I used Windsor 1, V-Groove, T and G, all around all the soffits on the shop. And then we switched to plywood from there on up. We used zip, you know, OSB actually on the, for the rest of the roof where it wasn't exposed. And when the material came on a job site, I read it with a moisture meter. Because, you know, I'm a real smart guy and I know how to use a moisture meter, so I stuck it right into the material. And all you have to do with a moisture meter, in case you didn't know, you stick it into the material, not the end grain, not over here, not into the end grain, into the material somewhere, and get a reading several different places. Look at this one says 6.0. You won't run into too much trim material at 6% moisture content. Most of the trim you're going to use is probably going to be around 10%, 8 to 10. 6 is pretty dry. This has been in my shop for a long time, so I just grabbed a couple of pieces and it's pretty dry. I heat my shop with a wood stove, so there's hardly any humidity in the air in my shop. We're going to understand all of this before you leave, I promise you. 
This is the only thing I, I want to get across this morning, is this little tool. Because a friend of mine, Scott Wells, he says this is a crystal ball. That's what this thing is. It tells you the future. So we put this starter board up and I read the moisture content on it and it was all around 8 to 10 percent. And I'm in southern Oregon, it doesn't rain quite as much down there as it does up here, but it rains 20 inches a year. So everything that's outside is going to end up someplace around 12 percent. That's going to be the equilibrium moisture content for exterior trim down in southern Oregon. Up here it's a lot higher. I've seen lots of photographs tape people take after their jobs have failed. I've seen lots of photographs of exterior trim and soffits that have swelled up and buckled off the joists and stuff. And, and they stick a moisture meter in it and I've gotten photos of it and it's closer to like 15, 16%. Down in Louisiana, the equilibrium moisture content of wood on the outside of a home is around 17 or 18%. Wood starts to rot at 19%. So this is all, these are all really important numbers. So I read the moisture content of the wood it was at 10%. I said, hey, this stuff's going to swell up a little bit because it's going to take on some moisture. It's going to go from 10% to 12%, which isn't a lot, but that's half a percentage point. That's about a 32nd of an inch it's going to grow. So when we put that starter board on, we took a little hotel card key, like a credit card, real thin, and we spaced every single board. Let me tell you something. I've been doing this for a long, long time, 40 years I've been working construction, almost, almost about 30 specializing in finish work. We didn't do that when I was younger. When I was younger, we didn't space anything, man. We put it together with a pry bar. T&G and Ship Lab, this stuff was tight as you could be. Not now, not today, because the material we're using today has no relationship to what we used when I was younger. It's almost a totally different, it's wood, but it ain't the same thing. So we gapped all those boards. Wasn't that smart? What do you think? Wasn't that smart? You betcha that was smart. Because all those boards took on moisture. They went up to about 12%, some a little bit higher, and none of them buckled. None of them bowed. Like you see people, you know, are installing stuff tight all the time these days. And it, and it bows. Well, it didn't happen to me, man. Trouble is... We ran out of material because I ordered short. So we ordered another delivery of Windsor One V-Groove TNG, and I didn't read it with a moisture meter. So we installed all of it on the backside of my shop, and at the very end, I said to Scott, who was working with me, oh, geez, we should take a picture of us reading that with a moisture meter. So we stuck a moisture meter in it. I got my camera out. I was focused on a moisture meter when Scott stuck it in the wood, and it said, I could see it in the lens on a zoom, you know, I really closed up on it, 17%. We were already done. So what happened then? It shrunk. So if you come up and visit me anytime, this is no, no lie, no story. You come up and visit me, and all of you are welcome to stop by anytime you want. You come up and visit great beer in southern Oregon too, by the way. You'll notice that on the back of my shop, we sprayed the overhangs all this cool green color, kind of a dark green. You can see white lines from the primer in between every single one of those TNG boards. Every single one of them shrunk. So I screw up too. Here's another story. How many of you are using Advantech floor sheathing? Anybody? 
Anybody? No? How about that? So it's not that popular up here. Anybody using Zipwall? Huber? Few people? Because it's not, they didn't have a tough time distributing up to the Pacific Northwest. It's expensive. This stuff's awesome. This is the way the engineering is going in the US. This is a new material too, just like this wood is a new material. This material is made out of OSB. And when I first heard about it, they told me it's waterproof practically. They said it is so water resistant that water cannot be absorbed by the OSB chips, so it'll never grow mushrooms like the OSB sheathing we used to get. Remember, maybe 15 years ago, we started using OSB sheathing. And it was perfect if you wanted to grow stuff on the side of your house because it would take on moisture and it would like it was just the perfect like kind of nutrient for mushrooms and stuff. Well, they take these OSB chips and they and I've been to their plant. I know this. I, I watched them do this. They have this huge, huge room. It's like a like a warehouse, and all of these chips are floating in the air. They pump this air in there and the chips are just floating in the air and then they pump this dry glue it's a powder it's called MDI glue they pump that into the room so the the air in the room you can see this brown powdered glue floating around in the air and all those chips are at a specific moisture content somewhere around 15 16 percent they're damp so they attract that dry glue and they get totally coated with the glue in fact the glue almost penetrates the wood chip the wood fibers on the chips and then they drop the air out of the room and all these chips float down and they sort them into these like perfect beds. It's about eight inches thick. They take the bed, it goes right on a conveyor belt into these huge hydraulic presses. You wouldn't believe the, the equipment they've got going on there. And when these presses come down, they create this enormous amount of heat and moisture from the, from the moisture content of the chips and it sets off the glue. MDI glue is polyurethane glue in a powder form just like Gorilla Glue. So every single one of those chip, chips, those OSB chips, is not only encapsulated in MDI glue, it's penetrated too. The MDI glue penetrates most of the chips. So the boards are almost waterproof. So I got a couple of units of that stuff, and I put it down on top of my concrete slab in my new shop. It's a radiant slab, because I'm a kind of a baby and I don't like my feet getting cold. So we put the, because I don't want to stand on concrete when I'm working in my shop, so I got a couple of units of this stuff and we laid it down on the floor and it's all TNG. And we didn't nail it to the slab, you couldn't, because it's a radiant slab. You can't penetrate the concrete, you might run into tubing. What happened? Every single one of those sheets buckled and bowed so much you wouldn't believe how much the bottoms of the sheets expanded because they were in contact with a wet slab. You know, the slab wasn't wet on the surface, but heck, it was only a few months old. Somebody told me it probably had 1,800 gallons of water in it, you know, because they figured out how many square feet of slab I had and how much moisture would still be in it. This stuff is not waterproof. It's made out of wood. I don't care what man does technologically with wood, it's gonna still take on moisture. It's gonna still swell when it takes on moisture. It's gonna shrink when it dries out. This is called thermary. This is just such a great, I'm so glad that Jim asked me to do this. It's a real honor, honestly. I can't, I can't tell you how much. 
I've known Jim for a long time, since I did my first road show at Dunlumber. It was the first time I ever went out of town and did a road show. And I was so tickled when he asked me to do this, especially on a specific subject that I could really get my hands around. This is thermary. Anybody heard about it? Okay, this is thermally modified wood. This, this is really popular in Europe, and it's becoming more popular in the States. It's just the only problem is the price point is almost the same as Ipe. So it's kind of tough to say, oh, gee, you know, I'm going to pick this instead of Ipe, because Ipe is pretty cool stuff. But this is thermally modified. So instead of, like, treating it or something, they cook it in a kiln, and they cook it up to 400 degrees. They have to inject steam into the kiln, otherwise the wood will combust at 400 degrees. So what happens is, at 400 degrees, the heat alters the molecular structure of the wood. It cooks out all the soft stuff, all the lignans, all the stuff that, that insects might like to eat, no longer there. So insects aren't too happy with this stuff. But it changes the molecular structure so the wood can't absorb moisture. This is like the real thing. Moisture is the enemy of wood in a way. I hate using that word though because th there's no enemy. There's just reality and we're carpenters. And what's our primary job? What's our primary responsibility? Solve problems. That's what we do, isn't it? Every single day, endlessly, we put out little fires and big fires. So moisture content is just something we need to learn how to deal with. So this stuff will only change moisture content 3 to 4%. That's it. From, the, from, from its dry state, it will only take on maybe 3 or 4% moisture content. And I can prove this to you because I used it on the decks of my own home. And boy, did I screw that up. How can you screw this up, you'll think? Well, when it comes to your job, it's going to all be wrapped up like Christmas. Every single individual board's wrapped in cellophane. And you take it out and you go, whoa, I don't want to put this on my deck. I want to make furniture out of it. This stuff's just awesome. It's gorgeous. So I didn't read the moisture content of it when it came on the job. We just went and installed it. And the first winter down there, it rained like every day. They say 20 inches in Southern Oregon. No, it was like 50 or 60 all winter long. These boards were underwater. And all of my little picture frame band around, you know, the picture frame band around the exterior of the deck, all those miters opened. Every single one of them opened up on the long point because the boards took on moisture. I read the moisture content. 7.5%, 6%, 7%, What does that tell you? What does that tell you? If it increased moisture content and the long points opened, and it was up at 7.5%, let's call it 8%, what was the moisture content when I installed it? It had to have been around 4 or 5%. So if you take a moisture, I didn't bother to read it. So if you take your moisture meter and you push it into this stuff, it's pretty hard, but you can get it 6%. So I'm certain the material that came to my job was at 4 or 5% because it couldn't, have, it couldn't have swelled up as much as it did if it weren't. And to this day, every time I walk by one of my decks and I see those miters on the outside of the deck and they look like that, it just pisses me off. <laughs> because it, it makes me feel so freaking stupid, you know? But it's not stupid. 
how can we consider that we're stupid when we don't know any better? I mean, I've been doing this for a long time. You'd think I'd have known better than to put woods down directly against a concrete slab without sealing the slab. Well, I took all of that wood up. I, I gave it all to, home, to um, Habitat for Humanity. I got a couple more units from Huber. I put down two coats of sealant on the concrete slab in my place. And then I put down a thick layer of plastic sheathing. Then I put that stuff down. It's bitchin'. So do not believe that wood is not going to move. It will always move. It will always take on moisture. Do not believe that there's anything that we work with, glass, concrete, asphalt, anybody using boral true exterior trim? It moves. When we first started using that, we started working with boral at the road show. They said, oh, this is the only trim material that doesn't move at all. And we took some of it and put it in a bucket of water and miked it before we did. And then we put a caliper on it afterwards and we saw movement. It was like really tiny. It was less than the 32nd of an inch in a piece of one by four, but it was movement. And we thought, oh, we must have screwed up because they told us it doesn't move. Don't believe anybody about anything. Check it out yourself. You're the only one who's gonna really know the truth and to be able to figure it out on your own. So what does that tell us? What do we do about movement? How do we handle it? Well, a good glue joint can withstand about 2% change in moisture content. So let's get into the math. And this is so cool because this is in the morning and we can talk about like a really difficult math formula. And since we're caffeinated, we can understand it. I'm kidding. This is a really simple formula. For every 4% change in moisture content, wood will move 1%. For every 4% change in moisture content, wood will move 1%. So if you're putting up one by six V-groove TNG on a soffit on the exterior of a home or on the wall of exterior home or on the wall of an inside of somebody's home, because boy, did I see a great one when I was in Southern California, a Windsor One job for um, this guy who was a hockey star, and I can't remember his name because I'm just not a sports guy, but they asked me to come out to his house and figure out what happened. And they had, they had skinned the entire interior of the home with the same material, with, with that V-groove one by six, and it shrunk big time. And what was really interesting was it didn't shrink too much down near the floor, but it shrunk a little bit right near the outlets, right, sorry, right near the switches on the walls, about four feet up the floor. And when you looked up higher toward the ceiling and you looked across the ceiling, it shrunk so much the painters had to come in and caulk everything and repaint the whole house. So that tells you what? The material was a little bit too wet when they put it in. So I asked the contractor, where did you store this stuff when you got it? Oh, we brought it inside the house and just like, just like you see the hardwood flooring, they had piles of hardwood flooring inside this house. We brought it inside the house just like the hardwood flooring and we stored it in here real carefully and covered it. And one of the carpenters, I was walking around the job, one of the carpenters came up to me and he said, you know, we actually put it outside. It was all, and this was like in the winter in Southern California when the, and it was near the ocean. It was up in Westlake on the hills, and it gets really damp there, you know? So it took on moisture, and then they installed it. And I knew it did. You can't lie to me. If the material shrunk, and it's now at 6 or 7%, then it had to have been around 10 or 12% when they installed it. 
And if you can't install exterior, you can't install trim on the interior of home at 12% and expect it to stay there. This material will shrink big time. Now, why is this material different than what we used to use when I was a kid? It ain't VG. It's not vertical grain wood. And it's not old growth heartwood. Everything we use today, we are the first generation of carpenters to use this stuff. Everything is face grain, mixed grain, which is even worse than face grain. It's all mixed grain, so there's some VG in it, but there's a lot of face grain in it, and it's all sapwood. Everything we use is sapwood, because all the trees are cut and milled too young for them to have converted any of the wood to heartwood. So sapwood is just like, it look, looks just like, under a microscope, it looks just like heartwood. There's hardly any difference. It's all, the wood fibers are made up out of these little microscopic straws, just like heartwood. But sapwood, the straws are wide open, just like arteries in a young kid. Whereas heartwood, they look like our arteries, you know, older guys. They're starting to solidify because that heartwood has been drawing nutrients out of the soil and transporting it up into the upper limbs of the tree. That's what these little straws do inside the wood fibers. They suck moisture and stuff out of the dirt, and over time, they solidify just like our arteries do. And that's the difference. Heartwood is almost impermeable. The wood treatment industry cannot use heartwood. They can't get the chemicals into the heart of the wood, into the center of the wood. I mean, they have a hard enough time getting those chemicals into sapwood. Look, this is a piece of four by four that's pressure treated and they can't get, you can see on this edge, they got the pressure treatment all around, all the way around the edge, but not into the center. But this is all sapwood. If it were heartwood, they wouldn't even been able to penetrate it even that much. So that's what's going on. The wood we're using today moves twice as much. Face grain wood will move twice as much when the moisture content changes. And since it's sapwood, the moisture content is really sensitive. It will change like a dry paper towel. It'll suck moisture right out of the air. So moisture content is completely dependent on the humidity in the air. On the interior of a home across the country where the average moisture content is around 50%, the equilibrium moisture content of wood is going to land somewhere around 10%, 8 to 10%. It's going to vary, sure. If you heat your home like I do with a wood stove, it's going to be bone dry. You'll see moisture content on wood that's 4%. On the exterior of a home across most of the country, the average equilibrium moisture content. So equilibrium moisture content is the same as when they say, what's the moisture content in use? Same thing. In other words, once you install it and it has time to get used to living where it's living, that's the equilibrium moisture content. It reaches it eventually. And that changes throughout the year. Just like here, it's certain, parts, certain times of the year it's drier and certain times of the year it's wetter. So the average equilibrium moisture content around the country on the exterior of a home is around 12 to 14 percent. Up here, probably closer to 14 percent. Like I was saying earlier, Louisiana is closer to 18, 19 percent. So these are really important things to know. You can pick up charts that'll tell you what the equilibrium moisture content is month by month for every region of the country. There's a chart in that article on this is carpentry on moisture content and wood movement from the, um, uh, the school in Wisconsin, the lumber industry school. And you'll, you'll be able to tell exactly what the moisture content's going to be different times of the year. So you'll know while you're installing it roughly what the moisture content of your wood should be. Do not. <clears throat> Do not take this lightly. 
This is probably one of the most important things a finished carpenter needs to know, and a framer too who's installing siding needs to know while they're installing the material. Let's look at this 4x4 here. I, I played with this, that's why it's so dark, but maybe it's so dark in here that you can't really see it, so I'd rather you didn't. Look at the moisture content, 30%. All right? How many of you have cut a 4x4? Probably this, is, this probably hasn't happened to very many of you, but how many of you have cut a 4x4 or a 6x6 or something or a 12x12 beam or something, and when you're cutting it with your circular saw, it spits water at you? It probably, happened to, it probably hasn't happened to many of you at all, huh? Anybody? Yeah. So that is a sign of fiber saturation. So the little microscopic straws that make up wood fibers, they're hollow, you know, when it's sapwood. And when the wood gets super, super wet, when it's still green, those little straws, the wall of the straw itself, is so wet that the fiber, the wood fiber itself is totally saturated. And any moisture that's in the wood in addition to that, in excess of that, gets collected in the straw itself. They call that free water. That's the water that's in the straw. So when you're cutting and you get spit at, with water, or when you're driving a nail or a screw into a joist or a rafter and you see water drip right out of that screw hole or that nail, well, that happens all the time, right? That means that piece of wood is, has passed fiber saturation. Fiber saturation occurs at 30%, roughly. 30% moisture content. So if you see free water coming out of a piece of wood, you can know for a fact that that piece of wood is in excess of 30%. It has exceeded 30%. It could be at 50%. It could be at 60%. It's definitely green. It may have been dried down to 19% at one time, but boy, once it goes back up to 30, it's called green again. It is illegal. Illegal and against building codes for you to install anything that's over 19%. Oh, what do we do about that? Are we going to start reading moisture content in all of our framing lumber? No way. Ain't going to happen. So what do we have to do then? We have to solve that problem ourselves. We have to be aware of what's going on. People say, Houses settle, that's why the doors are jamming. You know, those doors are rubbing on the head jam now because the house settled. The house hasn't settled. I mean, look at all the concrete and the steel and stuff we gotta put into a foundation these days, unless the soil's really bad. The house, the foundation hasn't moved. The house has shrunk. Houses shrink big time now, much more so than they ever did before because all the lumber is mixed grain sapwood. It's cut from trees that are young. We do not cut big old old growth trees like we used to when I was a kid. We don't do that anymore. My dad used to flag down those trucks in Southern California when he was building houses in the 50s, and I remember going to work with him. God, all of the studs they put in the wall and all the joists they put in the floors and in the ceilings, it was all old growth, VG, it was beautiful stuff. Not anymore. It's all face grain, so it moves big time. So how do we deal with that? Well, when you're framing, you've got to think about how, what's going to happen when the wood shrinks. Like if you're marrying up joists with solid lumber to a glue lamb, you've got to realize that glue lamb's not going to shrink, but those joists sure are. So you better set your joist hangers a little high, or you're going to end up with a huge bump in the floor right at that laminated beam. You all, talk, you all with me? Have you all had this experience yet? You must have because everybody across the country is experiencing the same thing. So what do you do as a finished guy? Just what I said. 
you read every single stick of wood with a moisture meter, especially the second load that comes, right? You make sure that the moisture content is, you make sure you're familiar with what the moisture content is. Otherwise, it's going to bite you in the backside. And how do you deal with seasonal movement? The kind of movement that you're going to get anyway when, it dry, when the humidity dries out in the summertime and it gets wet again in the wintertime. This is kind of funny. You know, in the East Coast, it's exactly the opposite. That's why people back there are so weird. Because, because it's really dry in the winter back there, and it's really wet in the summer. Have you all ever visited the East Coast? If you haven't, then you don't know what humidity is. Humidity is when the air has so much moisture in it, you can't survive. It's not someplace where human beings should be living. I mean, if, we're on, if you're used to being on the West Coast, you can't survive on the East Coast. So here's what happens. So we can understand what goes on with wood. Here's the trim on the interior of a home. And for a long time, for years, it just puzzled me why the short points on my miters, the little short points right at the inside corners, why they all would open when we were using big casing on homes down in Southern California. Southern California. There's no humidity change in Southern California. Well, there is. Some years, there is. Some years when we have an El Nino and it rains really hard, your trim comes to the job, you put it in the garage, we, we always do, we put it down near the slab, you know, put some two by four stickers down on the slab, then you put your trim on top of those stickers, let me tell and then you cover it. What do you cover it with? A tarp. What are the tarps made out of today? Plastic. They're not canvas like they were when I was a kid. So what are you basically doing? Your trims come to the job at 10%. You're putting it down on the slab in the garage, which is you know, the safest place in the world to put it. Then you're covering it with a, with a plastic tarp. I don't care if you put 2x12s down. You cover it with a plastic tarp. You're trapping the moisture from the slab in that bundle, which is the perfect thing to do if you're going to install that stuff outside. Because you're going to drive moisture into that wood. It's going to go from 10% to 14% probably in a week or two. And it would be bitching to install outside in the Pacific Northwest. It'd suck if you were installing it outside in, the, in Southern California because we don't have that kind of moisture change. So how do you get over this? How do you handle that kind of movement that's seasonal? Well, when I was a kid, we used to take our head casing, we'd take our glue, we'd glue up our joints, we'd nail the head casing to the wall, then we'd put a little glue on the leg, and then we'd take the, you know, we'd shoot the, head casing to the jam, not the wall, shoot it to the jam. Then we'd take the leg casing, put a little glue on that, and squeeze it up against it. And we'd shoot the leg casing to the jam, right? And then we'd cross nail it through the miter. And then we'd nail the whole, all, the whole casing trim package off to the wall, right? One, two, three, kind of. This is the way I was taught how to do it. Well, you can't do that anymore. And that's that. That's a traditional technique, and that's over with. You need to pre-assemble all of your casing. You need to put these things under pressure. This is a clam clamp. It costs about 75 bucks. I used to be really reluctant to talk about this. I'd, I'd talk about it. I'd kind of soft pedal it. This thing is made out of stainless steel. It's a mimic, um, kind of a copy of the old, I think it was called a um, Hancock or somebody help me here, the cast iron one. Anybody have one or seen it? 
The original cast iron clamp was similar. They're pretty popular in the East Coast. Anyway, it has a, a brass jaw, a couple of four pins in here. You can remove some of them if you want to. And when you squeeze this onto a miter, it puts about 200 pounds of pressure right on the joint. So just to show you how this works, you glue up your joint. I don't want to put any glue on here because I'll make a mess. And you put your clamp on here, and then you run your cam on it, and you tighten the sucker up. I mean, you've got to really grab onto that thing and pull on it. And you'll see glue squeeze out all the way to the short point of that miter. This is what I call a reinforced miter with a glue joint, a reinforced glue joint miter. And the reason it works is because according to Tightbond, Franklin Glue Company, you get 100% of the strength of the glue when you put it together under pressure like this. If you just do it the old way and you just stick your legs up against the head with some glue in there and you cross nail them and nail them off the wall, you get 15%, if you're lucky, you get 15% of the strength of the glue in that joint. Well, that sucks. That's not going to handle it. That's not going to handle seasonal wood movement. You've got to reinforce your miters. So that's one way to do it. You can put biscuits in there, too. You can put dominoes in there. You saw I put dominoes in this joint. Anybody have a domino? Who doesn't? If you don't, I'm, I feel really sorry for you. I have a couple extras at home. Give me a call. This is one of the coolest tools. If Festool deserves credit for anything, it's for the domino. Everything else, I don't know about. You know, they're Capex. I love the Capex, but it costs 1400 bucks. And if you work it really hard, it could go down on you. You know, I've seen a few of them that smoke before they're even a year old. But their saw is awesome. I love it. I wouldn't be caught without one because it has those twin lasers. Nobody else makes a saw like that. But the domino really kicks butt. Because you can put dominoes in and register your pieces together, register a miter together, not just flush across the face, but flush on the long point, flush on the short point. So no matter what, the joint goes together perfect and it stays there. So this is another way to reinforce a miter. As long as the moisture content of the wood doesn't move more than like 2%. So how do we know what that means? Anybody got a calculator on their telephone? On their cell phone? Come on, who doesn't have one? Yeah, come on, somebody give me, pull out your cell phone and get build calc up or something. Anybody, you got a calculator on you? Daniel's got one. So let's take a piece of one by six, five and a half inches, multiply it by 1%. 5.5 times 1%. Hit your inch button, hit the convert key. It's like about a sixteenth of an inch. Pretty close. That's about how much, that's how much, at 1%, you know, if the moisture content changes 4%, the wood's going to move 1%. 1% on a 1 by 6 is just under a sixteenth of an inch. That's a lot. What does that mean? Here's what it means. If you're doing a soffit and it's 8 feet wide across somebody's porch, their front door or something, in 8 feet, if that material comes to your job at 10% and ends up at 14%, in eight feet, it's going to grow over an inch. You add up the expansion on every single one of those pieces of one by six, you're looking at over an inch of expansion. Well, no wonder all those boards are going to buckle away from the ceiling joists. They've got no other choice. 
And don't be a fool and say, oh, I'm just going to leave some big gaps at the wall and at the beam on the outside of the deck, and that'll absorb any kind of movement. No, 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 no. That's not the way it works. It doesn't just expand toward the outside. It expands in both directions. So the reason that this short point opens, and this is, this is really fun. I, I learned this from Jim Chestnut, the guy who actually makes the clam clamp. He said the reason the miters are so susceptible and, and kind of like weak when it comes to wood movement, seasonal wood movement, is because wood moves across the grain. As the, as the wood changes moisture content, it moves across the grain. It doesn't move with the grain that much. An 18, 16 foot board might move at the most a 16th, or maybe an eighth of an inch in length, not a lot. But across the grain, a one by six can move a 16th of an inch. If it changes moisture content, 4%, you're gonna get a 1% change in size, that's a 16th of an inch, just figure it. So what happens? Here's what happens, it's so weird. I never thought of this until Jim explained it to me. Across the board here, you get maybe four and a half inches of wood movement right here, of wood width right here, but right up here at the long point, there's no movement. There's no wood right here. So what happens? The angle of the miter changes throughout the year. As the humidity changes seasonally, the angle of the miter changes. If you take this board and it's dry and you put it outside, if it's a 10% when you, when you get your job, when you lumber ship to your job, if it's a 10%, the angle of the miter is actually going to change. The wood's going to swell up. The miter's going to become more obtuse. The short points are going to hit each other and jam against each other, and the long points are going to open. Whereas if you take lumber that's a little on the wet side at 10 12%, you put it inside a home that's heated by a wood stove, the short points are going to open. The angle of the miter is going to become more acute. The angle of the miter actually changes, even though you cut it exactly at 45 on your $1,400 Fast Tool Capex. Who cares? If the moisture content changes of the wood, then the angle's going to change in the miter. Is that awesome or what? Well, not so much, but it's something to know. It's definitely something to know. Wood begins to rot at 19%. So here's another great story. And I'll, I'll, I'll kind of tie this up on this story right, right now. I think I've hit everything I wanted to. Am I doing okay, Jim, on time? Okay, great. Um, great, we did that, we did that. Good, okay. So wood begins to rot at 19%. And I, I like these stories because people learn more from my stories probably than anything else. But if the wood spits at you when you're cutting it, then it's like you know, 30% at least, because it's at fiber saturation. When bichethane first came out, you all know what I'm talking about? They now call it ice and water. They used to call it, it was bithethane, and we all thought of it as bichethane, because it was a bitch to work with. It was the first peel and stick membrane that ever hit the job sites. So I used to say if, if Frank Lloyd Wright had had bichethane, he'd have an awesome reputation. None of his roofs ever would have leaked. But, when it first came out, I thought, wow, what an awesome product. Every time we wrapped columns and rough posts, I wrapped the bottoms of them because I thought, wow, that's going to help them. You know, it'll, they'll never rot. 
especially right down where that Simpson post base was, you know, where they usually are really susceptible to soaking moisture up right out the end grain. The end grain's the weakest link of the wood. Weakest, weakest link in a piece of wood, because it's where the, the, those little straws are wide open. I'd wrap every single one of them with bichethane. Bichethane doesn't breathe. So those pieces of wood, those posts were at 40, 50% moisture content. I wrapped them with a non-permeable membrane so they could never dry out. Wood rots, are you starting to catch on? Yeah. Okay. Wood rots at 19%. I don't even want to know what happened with those houses. I just don't want to know. That's what we do, isn't it? That's what we do. That's how we learn. So that's why I kind of feel like I had, a, I had somebody, I won't, I won't say who, but it was a, well, it was a doctor. I had a, a surgeon say to me once, well, you know, the reason that this happens, we were having a problem, and, and he said, the reason this happens is because so many doctors, especially surgeons, are really reluctant to admit when, not that they've made a mistake, because they really haven't, they just didn't know any better, but they're reluctant to admit to failure. Human beings, you know, maybe men more than women too, are really reluctant to admit when they failed. Isn't that a shame? Because that's when we learn the most. But that's why they call doctors' professions a practice. That's why lawyers have a practice. Are we practicing? No. What we do supposedly is for real, and we're supposed to know what we're doing. Well, you can take that any way you want. Personally, I think it's bull, because we are working with stuff that is totally unknown. And then suddenly, somebody throws something like um, fiber cement siding at us, or they throw polyurethane core doors at us, or they throw fiberglass windows at us, or they, like Ultrax, or they throw, um, um, you know, Anderson's windows, which, which are called Fibrex or something, all these different materials and products, and we're supposed to learn how to use those on a new products on a daily basis. So are we practicing or what? We're not really, are we? Do any of you feel like you're practicing? You are, but you're not, because every single thing you do matters. It's just that you've got to admit failure. You've got to, like, Harness that ego, admit failure, ask questions, learn from your mistakes. That's the most fulfilling, rewarding part of our profession. Because it doesn't cost anybody's life when we screw up. So, um, questions? Yeah, I've got a few questions here that um, some folks sent to Jim. The first one here is um, double doors pairs of doors. And I, I kind of want to touch on this because this was kind of a special thing I did for Dunn Lumber. If you haven't had a chance to check this out, it's kind of a neat brochure. You can carry this in your glove box if you forget what the um, system is for fastening jams. But if you're not using a system for every single thing you're doing on a job site, if you're not taking the time to break it down into precise steps, then you're risking failure, unnecessary failure. And you're not making as much money or having as much fun as you could have. 
If you get systems in place for every single thing you do, installing windows, installing prefit doors, you know, hanging, you know, installing shingles, siding, every single thing, sheathing, framing walls, cutting, cutting headers, everything, then you're wasting time. You're, you're incorporating frustration into your job. You're making it harder to train new employees. You're wasting money. You're not going to have as much fun. So this door thing is really important to me because it's one of the things that I developed years ago, this five fastener deal, and it's kind of you know, compressed in that little brochure. You can see an online video on installing a single door, like Jim said, or a pair, and it all gets down to the first five fasteners. As soon as you get the head installed in a new jam, and you get it flush with the walls, you can put in fasteners one and two way up near the top of the head jam, but you cannot put fasteners in the rest of that jam at all. You can't put shims behind the freaking hinges and nail off the jam legs to start with. That's how you install jams if you're going to hang a door. When you're installing prehungs, you don't get to you don't get to cut the doors to fit. You're not mortising the hinges into the jams of the doors so that you can get everything lined up and flush at the meeting style on a pair. You've got to be able to adjust the bottom of the jam legs. Sometimes big time, because the walls might be cross-legged. The doors might have wind or twist in them or bow in them or something. So if you can't move the bottoms of the jam legs, you're screwed. So don't fasten those things. If you have to fasten them, put a few tacks in them so they're still loose, so you can move them around, because that is how you line up the meeting styles on a pair of doors. And if you haven't fastened off the jam legs at the bottom, you can shim behind them, correct your gaps below your bottom hinge, and get the tops of your doors perfectly straight and flush. It is just shocking how easy it is to set a perfect pair of pre-hung doors if you do the system right. And that's it. It's just like Windows. He's got another question on here about how to deal with an out-of-square opening. So when I was a kid, we used to, some of you probably still do this. When I was a kid, we used to uh, set jams for Windows. We'd get them plumb and level. And then we'd take diagonal measurements from each corner, you know, each opposite corner. Anybody still doing diagonal measurements on their windows as they install? Old guy. Anybody else? Young guy. Awesome. That's because it's a traditional technique. That's the way you were taught, right? And that's the way you were taught by some old guy or probably some article in a magazine or something. Well, totally unnecessary. So you're, you haven't been, like, paying attention to what's happening. You don't need to do diagonal measurements. Even if the window manufacturers tell you in the little photographs and drawings that come with their installation instructions that the next step is to do diagonal measurements, baloney. I did diagonal measurements when I was young because the window frames used to come out empty, no sash. We did stucco on every single job site in Southern California. And I'll never forget the first job I ever went on with my brother as a finished crew. All of the frames came, no sash. We set all the frames, got them in there perfect with framing squares, and did diagonal measurements to make sure they were perfectly square. And the sash came out like months later. This was a job on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And there must have been 150 windows. All the sash came out with the doors. And we hung the sash. When I say hung, I mean we scribed the sash to fit the frames. We planed the sash. We waxed the edges of the sash. We put the freaking sash balances in. 
All of that used to be done on the job site. But if your windows come to your job with sash already in them, you just plumb up your frames, put a few tacks in the corners, right, in your window frames, and then you lower your upper sash and you check the reveal, the gap between the top of the sash and the top of the jam. You lift your lower sash, you check the sash reveal between the sash and the sill, and you make sure it's parallel. And if the two reveals are the same, if they're parallel on a double hung, or on a casement, if you open the casement and then close it, if the gap, the, the gap between the window and the frame is perfectly parallel and even, you're good to go. What do you need to do diagonal measurements for? The jam is square. And if it's not perfectly square, it's following the windows, it's following the sash, they're gonna operate clean. That's the trick knowing what techniques to use and when. That's all part of that systems approach. So if I'm installing windows in an out of square opening, and if it's a pre-manufactured window, if it's something that's been shipped to the job, then I'm gonna have to tear that opening apart. If the header is too low, what do you do? How do you fix a header that's too low and you don't have room to square up a, jam square, square up a frame? You come back in the middle of the night, you put your car lights on an opening, you get your skill saw out, and you take a quarter of an inch out of the bottom of that header. I mean, that's not something you can do during the day, right? <laughs> so the next question, I'm kidding. The next question is kind of, not really, because I've actually done it. <laughs> Somebody here says, I'm also curious um, what Gary Katz likes to eat for breakfast. I'm not kidding, this is actually here. And what his favorite lunch to pack on a job site. So I eat like a huge breakfast, lots of protein, and the same for lunch, and I eat like probably three times in the morning because we burn through a lot of calories. So I take hard-boiled eggs and stuff for a break, and I take a sandwich every single morning. I, can't, I still have my lunch box even though I haven't gone to a job site in years, but it's the same. It's like a, a major like thing to make breakfast and lunch in the morning, and that's the beginning of the system. Because if you don't have it down, if you don't have that whole process down, it could take you an hour to make lunch. And you only have 10 minutes, you know? So it's, that's, that's, that's my breakfast and lunch. Then another one is, what trim materials besides MDF would you recommend for use in bathrooms? Well, I can only think of a four-letter word if I'm going to refer to MDF. I hate MDF. I hate MDF. MDF moldings are never sharp and crisp because it's not strong enough. The material isn't strong enough to have a nice, sharp, crisp line. And when I say sharp and crisp, I mean like this. The edges of the fillets aren't eased over. They're eased over on MDF. And on a nice piece of wood molding, they're sharp and crisp. And if they're sharp and crisp, you can see the detail because it breaks. The shadow line of the light running across the molding breaks, and you can see the detail. MDF sucks because it's all eased over and rounded. It's cheap. You know, it's, it's, and, and it takes on moisture. So if he says, what material besides MDF? Well, I wouldn't use MDF in the first place. I know PVC isn't such a bad thing to use on the inside of a home. It only moves because of temperature changes, not moisture content. PVC moves, it swells up and, 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 and grows when it gets hot, and it shrinks when it's cold, and that's it. It's just like you when you jump into a swimming pool because you haven't had the experience. You know what I'm talking about. So keep that in mind. Do you, many of you install PVC up here? 
Anybody? All right. So PVC, this is so much fun. If I go too long, you're going to have to tell me. Just put a hook on my neck and drag me out of here. PVC is kind of fun. I used to install that stuff, and I'm used to working in Southern California, and we always pick the warm side, sunny side of the house to work on, and we kind of follow the sun around, even in the winter. Well, you guys do that too. They do it in the Northeast as well, and I've told the same story, and every single one of the guys goes, oh, duh. Well, if you take your PVC trim, and you carry it with you to the sunny side of the house, and it's 30 degrees outside, which is warm, actually, in the Northeast, you take it out, out to the sunny side of the house, it's going to start cooking. It's going to start taking on heat from the sun, and you're nice and comfortable, and so is the PVC. The problem is it's swelling up. The length of it is increasing. PVC moves with the length, not the width. It moves big time on length, very little across the, across the grain in a way, and it actually does have a grain. The molecular structure, the cell structure is like little balls on PVC, and they're aligned with the length of the board. So. You're following the sun around the house, and you're nice and warm, and your PVC's nice and toasty, and you're installing it. By the time you get all the way around the house and you're rolling up at the end of the day, you look back at the first wall you did. It's now in the shade, and it's 30 degrees or 25 now. It's the end of the day, and all your butt joints have opened up already. In less than eight hours, the material has shrunk so much you can see like a quarter-inch gap between butt joints, and I've seen like three-eighths from PVC. So how do you deal with it? If you're installing it in the wintertime, keep it cold. If you want to work on the sunny side of the house, keep your material on the shady side. Where'd that thing go? Think. Think about what you're doing. That is the biggest difference between carpenters today and the carpenters that used to work with my dad. All they had to do was know how to work with old growth VG lumber. They had it made. Yeah, they had to learn how to sharpen their hand saws, which they did every morning before they started work. But they didn't have to worry about the stuff we have to worry about. Today, to be a successful carpenter or contractor, you really have to keep up with the science. This is one of the most important aspects of construction today. If you're not keeping up with building science, then you're a fool, and you should get out of the business and sell shoes, because you're not doing anybody any favors. You're, ruining, you're hurting your clients, and you're ruining the, po the possibility of your own success as well. There's nothing more rewarding than studying our craft, being a professional, and educating yourself constantly about what's out there. And how do you do that? Well, when I was younger, you had to read magazines. Today, you can subscribe to Joe Stebrook's site, Building Science, buildingscience.com. You can get his monthly newsletter. It's killer. It's killer. You want to read an article called, called Mind the Gap that Joe wrote years ago. It'll explain all of the business about rain screen walls. It'll explain it all to you in real simple layman's terms. If you're really into growing pot, then you're going to want to read his most recent article on how to build a grow. Like, I'm kidding. But, but I'm serious. He just published this article on how to, how to build out a grow building or whatever you want to call it, you know, properly. It's just like killed me that he did that. Anyway, does anybody have any other questions? Yes. Uh, you brought up the Varel material. Yes. So the question is about Borel's true exterior trim, and, and do I like it, and do I have any tips about it? I really like Borel true exterior trim because it doesn't move that much. It moves very little. Um, they have had a problem with their beveled siding. 
So they've discontinued the manufacturing of it just recently. And I think the problem was related to the fact that it varied in size across the bevel, and they were ending up with some like movement problems that they weren't, um, they hadn't anticipated. So they immediately took it off the market, which, all right, good, you know, good for you. I like it because of another reason too. You can install uh, Boral True Exterior Trim with finish nails. It moves so little, it won't, it won't come off the wall from, from movement. So it, that's nice to be able to use a stainless steel finish nail or something and just shoot gun it on. The other reason that I like Boral is for environmental <coughs> reasons. Boral is really the result of the Clean Air Act that was passed around the early 1990s. And the Clean Air Act mandated that the coal industry install scrubbers on their smokestacks. Actually, this is all connected. I'll, I'll get there, honest. You're going to think I'm going off on a tangent here, but I'm, I'm coming right back. So these scrubbers they installed on the smokestacks, they, they generate this enormous amount of fly ash that they collect. So for decades, they took the fly ash and they piled it up on these impoundment ponds. They had to keep it wet because it's so dry, the wind would just aerate it, you know, just end up in the air. So they keep it wet and they keep it in these impoundment ponds. And in Tennessee, in the Tennessee River Valley area, one of those ponds burst. This is like 10 or 12 years ago. And all this fly ash went right down the Tennessee River and really made a mess. They couldn't get it out. That stuff's still in the river. And the fly ash is contaminated with cadmium, arsenic, all kinds of really fun carcinogens. So Boral, this Australian company, specializes in capturing fly ash, testing it to be sure that it's pure, and if not, cleaning it, and using it in the construction industry. They first started using it, I think, in concrete as a wetting agent. It absorbs moisture. So it's really awesome in concrete because moisture is the, the biggest enemy of concrete. If they can figure out a way to keep it dry, the concrete will last longer, and the steel that's in the concrete will last longer. So it's awesome for concrete. And then they started mixing it with MDI glue with that powdered polyurethane glue and they put some fiberglass in it too so it, it has some structure to it. Otherwise, it's so flexible like Hardy, it's so flexible it'll crack when you pick it up. So I really like it because they're using that fly ash, they're encapsulating it into construction material that you know is now um, totally coated in polyurethane glue so there's no risk. Well. I don't trust anybody when they tell me that. But supposedly, from all the testing, there's no risk that we're being contaminated with it. But I'd still, boy, mask yourself big time when you're cutting that. It's just like Versetta stone that Boral makes. You want to wear a mask because there's an enormous amount of you know, contaminants that are in the air when you're cutting it with a saw. And since we're on the subject, you guys use a lot of hardy up here. How many of you are priming your end cuts? You are. Everybody, do you know this? You read the instructions on Hardy, and it says you've got to prime every single end cut. Every time you cut that stuff, you've got to put two coats of primer on it. Lots of folks weren't aware of that. You've got to prime Hardy, too, just like you've got to prime all the end cuts on Windsor 1. There's no difference. This is a non-traditional technique. It isn't something that we were taught when we were younger, because older carpenters never did that. If you told somebody like the guys that worked for my dad, hey, you've got to carry around some primer and prime all, they'd laugh at you. They'd say, oh, that's the painter's job. No. Today, with the way the business has evolved and the way science has, has influenced our, the construction industry, you've got to prime every end cut. So in, did that help you? Good. Any other questions? I'm here. Take advantage of it. Yeah.
So uh, we use uh, Collins clamps on uh, our trim jobs. How, uh, how strong of a joint would you say that compared to just gluing versus the super clamp you have there? So the question was um, the benefits of a Collins miter clamp or a Collins spring clamp as compared to like Jim Chestnut's clam clamp. Well, I think the Collins clamps are awesome for smaller materials. I think they give you more than enough pressure on a glue joint for basic crown molding and uh, casings that are two and a half inches or something. Definitely. And leave them on. Like glue it up, leave them on, and just remember at the end of the day to walk the job really carefully because you'll leave them someplace, you know, like on the outside corner of a crown, you know, job or something. But if you're running big casing like this, you can't get enough pressure on the short point of the miter with a little Collins spring clamp on the outside. So you really have to use these. So, so. Yeah, exactly. Once you get up to about a one by four, you're, you're running into this. So the other thing I can't resist saying is, I've noticed recently, I've only been, I've only been um, active on Instagram in the last maybe five or six months. I just started late, because I, I always thought it was just baloney, you know, all the social media, I thought. Anyway, it's kind of silly to make those kinds of judgments. But I learned the hard way that it's, it's not baloney. There are a lot of really progressive finished carpenters on Instagram that buy like 12, 20 of these things. They keep them in a sustainer. They cost 75 bucks a piece, and these guys are willing to invest that much money in a clam clamp. And they pre-assemble everything. And these guys are hot. I mean, you go online and you look at some work from um, Elite Carpenters in Las Vegas, JPM Construction, I could name like, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, guys are not, younger guys are nodding their heads. Older guys are going, huh? You know, I'm not going to spend 75 bucks on that. Do not shortchange yourself. If you're a Finnish guy, then you've already made the commitment to invest heavily in tools and knowledge. Finnish carpenters have to have more tools than any other trade. If you're not willing to maintain that investment, then get out of the business because this is what it requires, that kind of progressiveness, that kind of real kind of like care and passion where you're willing to put money into your company to make sure that your work is exemplary, is the best you can absolutely make it. Did that help you? Anybody else? Questions? Yeah. yeah. So on that boral, what do you do about the water wicking? On the boral, what do I do about water wicking? Well, boral won't wick into the end grain on boral. Oh, sorry. Water won't wick into the end grain on boral. It won't wick into the material any more through the end grain than it will right through the face of the material because it doesn't really have grain. But, and boral doesn't require that you paint their end cuts. But, I still would. I'd, I'd seal everything. I think it's just so important to protect against moisture. Let me give you another example, if I can. And I'll go to another manufacturer, especially since uh, Thermatrue is now doing this too. When I first started using PlastPro doors, they're fiberglass doors, they were the only company that made a door with a fiberglass skin and composite top and bottom rails. The only company, everybody else was using wood bottom rails or wood top rails and even wood styles that were exposed. 
And you had to not only prime the styles and the rails, top and bottom, you know, like the, the, the biggest headache in the world that the painters never do properly enough is prime the bottoms of the doors and they fail, right? Well, it's because they were wood. Plaspro came out with these composite styles and rails so that the fiberglass skin had a molecular bond to the composite styles and rails. Moisture couldn't get inside there. You didn't have to prime them. You didn't have to paint them. Now, Plaspro didn't say this. I tested it. And I still have a door on my well house, on my pump house, that's a Plaspro door in a Plaspro polyfiber jam that's never been painted, never been primed, and it's six years old. And it's on the western side, so every afternoon the sun cooks it, just bakes it. And it hasn't warped, twisted, nothing. It's in perfect condition. So that tells me that there are some building products out there that actually aren't affected so much by moisture or heat. Boral, I'm not sure if the, if the truth is in yet. You know what I mean? But from what I can gather from soaking that material in a big bucket of water, like I did all the trim that I used for an article for fine home building, by soaking it in the bucket of water, I felt that I determined at least enough for myself that it was pretty safe to use outside, but I still like to prime the M cuts. Yeah. What about those, uh, those cups? Is that clamp clamp? How, the, long do you, how long are you going to leave that on? This is kind of cool. The question was, how long do I leave a clamp clamp on the, on the joint? Um, at least 10 or 15 minutes. It takes about 5 or 10 minutes for the glue to set. It takes about 20 minutes for it to cure. But you're going to find real quick that when you put your joinery together under pressure, the glue sets even quicker especially if the humidity isn't too high. Is that like Titan 3 glue? Or? I don't like, I, I, I use Type Bond 3 when I'm working outdoors, but I haven't like um, found it as comfortable to work with as Type Bond 2. So I generally use Type Bond 2 for everything, and if I'm outdoors and I feel like it's totally exposed, like a handrail or something exterior that's going to get wet wet, I use Type Bond 3. When I put my um, gates together, for all the exterior gates I put on my place, I use Type Bond 3, and they're rock solid. I use Type Bond 3, a, a, an assortment of different sized dominoes, and that's how I assembled the whole thing. And my gate for the front driveway is 12 feet long, six years ago. Anybody else? Yes? Uh, when you're priming your cuts like a 30 pound, you use a spray primer? No, I don't, I don't use spray primer because then the primer will go all over the place. So I got a really simple, stupid way of handling end cuts, especially on a crew. I save those little, those little yogurt containers, the plastic containers. I buy a box of throwaway brushes. I do not screw around. They're so cheap. They're like a buck or two a piece, right? I take the lid on the yogurt container, I poke a hole in it, I stick the handle through it, because there's nothing worse for a finished guy than getting a little paint on your fingers. I mean, <laughs> right? So that way you're protected from the paint by the lid, and don't fill the yogurt container all the way. Fill it like about a third of the way. That way it won't have a tendency to tip over and make a big mess. And that way every time you need it, you can pull the cap off, pull the top off with the paintbrush still coming out the, the top, Prime your end cut, put the cap right back on again. The paint lasts at least all day, maybe a couple of days. The brush will last you almost a week. And when it starts getting really gummy, you throw the whole thing away. It's killer. It's the simplest way to handle that ornery kind of task of priming end cuts.
And I think you had a question back here. The question is, how do you handle an unhappy customer? Uh, that's a really, really, really good question. Do you have another hour with us? Yeah. <laughs> okay, the first thing I'll tell you is the, the rule my brother gave me. Years ago when I started working with my brother, I moved from Arizona back to LA. My brother said, listen, there's only one thing we can do in this situation. We had a customer that just wasn't going to be happy no matter what just wasn't going to be happy. I don't want to talk about where they were from, but you probably can guess. And um, he said, there's only one way you can handle a customer that's just not going to be happy. Throw money at them. Throw money at them. Literally? Yeah. <laughs> well, not quite literally, but listen, there's nothing I can do about this. There's nothing I can do about the problem you're having. This is a moisture content issue or we didn't do the stucco, and I know this sounds like baloney, like I'm trying to get off the hook, but we put all of the flashing around your windows properly. Here's some photographs we took to prove it. We used to always do that. Photographs the windows before the stucco guys came, because then when the stuck windows leak, they end up pulling the stucco off, and they find out that the stucco guys didn't tie their, their stucco paper into the flashing properly, and they got a bunch of reverse splashing. You know what I'm talking about? And the water's coming right in. Well, if you don't take photos of your work, then you can't prove that you did your job right. So we always took photos. And sometimes the people would say, well, we're going to sue you anyway. And we'd say, hey, you know, if, if you're dead set on suing us, then go ahead. But we're not responsible for this. But we will we'll give you a check for $1,000 to help offset the expense you're going to run into by demoing all the stucco openings around. But, but in our giving you this $1,000, we're not admitting that any of this was our fault. We're just doing you a favor out of the kindness of our heart. You know, an attorney would say, don't you dare do that, because, you know, blah, 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 blah. But we learned a long time ago that there are some, some, some customers that you cannot make happy. And one way or the other, you've got to lubricate your way out of that situation. And that's all there is to it. Can I? Yes. Yeah. teaching us and teach it in terms of the client so they know what we have to deal with for them so that we're educating your clients is really important yeah <laughs> educating your clients is really important and that's probably something that Jim's going to make sure you know from Jim Koshal from Don Lumber is going to make sure he has available for you guys you know if, if there's a legal form or something you could use as long as Don Lumber isn't responsible for what happens afterwards but <laughs> The problem is nobody ever reads that stuff. You know, if, if you really want to go to some serious trouble, if you're doing a job that could be really ticklish down the road, you may want to build a mock-up and have a meeting with the client. With their, if, they, if it's a really big job, you might want to meet with their owner's rep. Anybody ever worked on a job with an owner's rep? 
You know what I'm talking about? You get them all together in one, in one room at one time. You have a mock-up and you say, hey, here's how I'm going to do this. Here's what's going to happen potentially down the road if it's not maintained properly. And I can't be responsible for that. And you say it in front of everybody and you've communicated now. It's, it's not too safe sometimes just to rely on documentation in your contract or something because people don't read, which is another you know, kind of thing we're finding out these days. Anybody else? Yeah. Uh, we have a handful of decks that we built. And uh, in the extreme heat of the summer, some of the joists have actually shrank so much that if you sight down the surface of the deck, it actually looks like rolling waves. So I'm just curious how you would recommend anticipating setting deck joists, assuming that you know, maybe have some shrinkage and growth within the joists. I, the, the question is about joist movement on decks and how to handle it. I just learned this a few weeks ago. I was in Denver visiting Austin Hardwoods. And um, Randy Haas there is the general manager. He is a real wood guy. And he took me out into the yard because I wanted to buy some hardwood. And he was picking the boards for me. And he was explaining to me why he was picking them. And he said, look, notice this board right here. It's got some really good VG straight grain on the outer edge of it. But the inside of it's all face grain. And that means that board's going to move differently from the outside to the inside. And he said, now look at the board right next to it. And this is what I'm talking about. If you look at your framing lumber as you're pulling it out, remember what we used to do with studs for walls? I'd probably still do it if you if you're really care about what you're doing. You crown them, right? Some people say, oh, you crown one one way and you crown the other the other way or something. You reverse them. I, never, I was taught that you always crown everything in the same direction like rafters. You crown them up. You got to be really careful with that with deck choice. But since we're, we're the first generation of carpenters that are working with fresh growth, sap, wood, mixed grain lumber, we got to look at something else as well, unfortunately. We got to look at how much mixed grain is in the board. Because what you're experiencing is the variance between shrinkage between individual boards because of the mixed grain structure of the lumber. So if you end up seeing a board that's got wildly mixed grain, you can tell pretty quick that, especially if you look at the end grain of the board and it has a circle on it, that means you're seeing the eye of the plinth, of the pith, the center of the tree. Just put that board aside. Don't even use it. Because I bet you anything that that board that moved the most and it was different than any other, I bet you that one was right out of the pith of the tree or too close to it to use you know, for a structural piece of wood. It's going to move too much. Is this crazy or what? Is this totally nuts? Well, it's, the tr it, it, it's what it is, man. It is what it is, and we have to learn to work with it. And that's, that's what it gets down to is what's, what's the wood going to do? Yeah. In addition, can I add something to the situation? Until Jim tells us we're done. <laughs> a lot of times they'll put uh, what's called an understructure. So uh, uh, it's even it's a dry space, uh, more right? exaggerated. Oh, you mean they'll, they'll put like that drainage thing underneath. You, your, your thing was a lot of times they'll put an understructure in like, like a drainage or a, or a drip pan. Is that what you're talking about? It's more of a specialized system, but it's uh, made out of metal. Right. Together, yep, and they make them out of PVC. They so make it's them, a fully yeah. System, uh huh. So that you probably get a lot of yeah, heat trap. Is one of those things that yeah, so that you can have some kind of living space underneath it, Correct. even if it's outdoor living space. Yeah, and then it could be trapping moisture in there yeah. so that you're building humidity up right in the bottoms of those joists, 
Ugh. You know, just, this just freaks me out when I think about that. Not because mosquitoes are going to breed in there or something, just because the wood is going to be exposed to excessive amounts of humidity from that moisture. It's just like some guy sent me a, an email the other day and asked me if I had a really good design for box gutters. The gutters that you put right in the ends of the rafters so they're not exposed, they're hidden, you know? Yeah, I have a really good illustration for that. Don't do it. You know, unless, unless you're going to spend hundreds, you know, $100,000 on the gutter system and make sure that it's totally waterproof, don't do it. It's too risky to get to invite water right inside of the roof. It's like you're just asking for trouble. Any other questions? Great. Hey, I want to thank all of you for coming here for breakfast. I sure was honored and I had a great time. Thanks, Jim. Really.